0: Welcome to Talking Feds, a roundtable that brings together prominent former federal officials for a dynamic discussion of the most important legal topics of the day. I'm Harry Litman. I'm a former U.S. Attorney and Deputy Assistant Attorney General and current Washington Post columnist. Well, they did it. On the one hand, it's no surprise to anyone who's watched the Senate in the last four years and on the other, it's completely astonishing. Fifty one Republican senators under the tight whip hand of Mitch McConnell determined that there is no need for additional evidence. No need in particular to call John Bolton, who was practically doing jumping jacks outside the chamber in order to acquit the president of the charges that the House managers had brought. It's a moment of such pure pretzel logic. At the highest levels and the most solemn functions of the United States government, that it's still hard to get your head around, even though we just saw it happen. 51 Republican senators declare themselves ready to acquit with no witnesses called for the first time in any impeachment trial in history, president or anyone else, and with the assurance that the testimony that they were stiff arming was direct evidence of the president's intentionally carrying out the scheme that the House has charged. It's like a film noir where you see Mitch McConnell in the last frame put a torch to the videotape and gleefully watch the flames rise. So now it's all over but the voting, which the Senate, having checked in their capacities as jurors to get the personal okay of the defendant, the president here, has set for Wednesday on the other side of the Iowa caucuses and the State of the Union. And these grave charges will soon be formally rejected, but flourish in some strange braided fashion with the presidential campaign that is about to go into full gear. What a mess. And to survey the wreckage, we have a great panel of new and old talking feds. First, Matt Miller, partner at Villanova, former director of the Office of Public Affairs for the Department of Justice, an MSNBC consultant who's the hardest working man in public commentary on weeks like these, and charter member and frequent guest on Talking Feds to the great benefit of our listeners. Hey, Matt, thanks for coming. Thanks for that uh, ridiculously over-the-top introduction. (laughs) Jennifer, thanks. Jennifer Rogers next, also a frequent visitor to Talking Feds and a lecturer at Columbia Law School. She is a legal analyst for CNN and a longtime assistant U.S. attorney at the Southern District of New York, where she held multiple supervisory positions. Jen, thanks for being here.
1: Thanks, Harry. Good to be here.
0: And we're finally thrilled to welcome, for the first time to Talking Feds, Rick Wilson, who uh, people call a Republican political strategist, uh, but that's kind of like saying George Will is a columnist or Matt is a communications strategist. It's true, but it doesn't capture the breadth and intelligence of what he does relative to others who might share the title. He pens, as most know, the I must-read column in the Daily Beast. He runs the Lincoln Project, which is a project of – well, Rick, is it all Republicans?
2: We are at this moment all Republicans, but we've got some other folks who are joining our advisory team who are independents and ex-Republicans. The genesis of this was that you don't leave a bunch of uh, experienced guys with tools in- alone alone. <laughs>
0: But they've done it, and they announced, I think just this morning, a broad-gaged campaign to stop the president with what uh, Rick says will be a pretty friggin' nasty blitz of TV ads uh, comparing the group – I love this one – to, quote, a pirate ship. Uh, Rick's also a best-selling author. Everything Trump touches dies, New York Times bestseller, but he has just published his second book. Running Against the Devil, a plot to save America from Trump and Democrats from themselves. It, of course, shot immediately to the top 10 in both elections and political parties on Amazon. And by the way, he reads it himself in the audible version, which I've just started. And that really adds to the book. Let me just ask, what do you mean exactly? Saving Democrats from themselves? Well, one thing I
2: observed over 30 years in Republican politics wasn't that me and guys like me were a bunch of geniuses, but that the Democrats would frequently do everything they could to, w- to lose elections and, th- and that they were holistically bad at politics. And what I mean by that is occasionally they'll get a brilliant like, generational candidate like a Barack Obama or a Bill Clinton or a JFK, but operationally, they're not that great. And they have these, these big cognitive flaws in their outlook about what campaigns are in this era. And we were able to hack that system for a long time. And, you know, we, we had this long march through state legislatures. And you know, we ping pong back and forth on Congress a bit. But this long march on the control of the states that, that came from the fact that we were able to exploit Democrats' inability to run the kind of campaigns they needed to run because they were often running the campaigns they wanted to run. And so I'm trying to give the Democrats some advice in this book on what kind of traps are out there, what kind of, what kind of things are going to happen from somebody who helped build the machine that, that they're going to find themselves facing in the next couple of months.
0: Got it. Okay. And I, you know, I do think I'm no political strategist, but I do think the Dems have started to focus to, to great um, success in just the last couple of years at the stateside level. Let's dive in, starting with the witness decision from yesterday, which on the one hand seemed the apotheosis of the Senate's abdication of its oath to do impartial justice. How in the world can you refuse to hear the most probative evidence and then go on to acquit? Yet on the other, just a sort of marginal extra, you know, helping of deck stacking by senators who were never even pretending to take it seriously. So let me start a little at the political level, given the savvy of our panel here was the end game with witnesses, which I would say started with from McConnell's G guys, I just don't have the votes announcement a few days back and ended with the reveals of Alexander Collins and Murkowski, was it all basically orchestrated so that Collins has political cover but no witnesses would come? Or was it, in fact, organic and it just happened to work out with that same old 5149 coda?
2: Nothing Mitch McConnell ever does is organic. This was plotted out this way from the very beginning. This was this was the, the scheme that they launched into this coordination with the White House on from the beginning. Collins is vulnerable. She is in political trouble. So is Gardner. Uh, so is McSally. But what was going on there was a very simple decision by McConnell to let just enough steam out of the system a couple of days before by saying I don't have the votes so that they would they would make this play to they also was part of their thing. Look, Lamar and McConnell are very close friends. So I knew from the beginning... Yeah, he's
0: supposedly his best friend in the Senate. Yeah,
2: I knew from the beginning Lamar was not going to break with Mitch McConnell over the most consequential votes of McConnell's entire career. It just wasn't going to happen. So this was a kabuki dance, and it was executed beautifully. And, And look, that's not to say that there will not be a set of severe political consequences because of it for some of these members, but it is to say that... This is never going to be something where where people had had principles stood up for them. And Mitch McConnell said, OK, I respect your decision. He was going to kill this thing from the very beginning.
0: All right. Well, and we'll get to that, although I do have the sense from maybe the the Kavanaugh hearings and others that he at least coddles the Collins and Murkowski's of the world enough to make it seem he respects them. All right. I see this point about Lamar Alexander. But, Matt, what the hell? Why does he have this, you know, Rasputin like influence over, say, Murkowski. I understand that was his dance from the start, but he absolutely needed each and every actor to go along, at least if they were, you know, didn't get to 50 50, which they were scared of. How did he get everybody to play their role, even people whose constituents by and large loathe him?
3: Uh, because one thing Republican senators know about Mitch McConnell is that the thing he cares most about is power, uh, specifically in this instance, uh, this instance, the power of, a Republican Senate majority. And he has been able to convince them that the best thing to preserve the, the majority was to take this vote against witnesses. I, I don't think that was the right calculation, but I think what they, what they have collectively decided is they're better off Voting against witnesses and shutting down the trial and dealing with the inevitable blowback that comes when further evidence emerges, when John Bolton does his book tour and more documents come out of the State Department and out of OMB, then they would be having voted to allow witnesses and then vote to acquit Trump after John Bolton comes and says "Uh, he did it. He did all of it and that, that
0: i and, think that's and, and the, why uh, why exactly they would have very, just because it would seem all the more discordant it, once it, the it, evidence
3: it, came in it. it would it, that it would make the it would make the acquittal vote um, yes look more discordant with the the facts that they have on record I, I will tell you what though you know look he's 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 a smart guy but i i think he's wrong about the impact of this vote against witnesses and the reason i think it is is because it this vote more than just about any vote you will take more than a vote on policy, more than anything else is so important, not just because of the principle at stake, whether there ought to be witnesses at at trial, but because it says something about the character of these senators. It says whether, you know, it it says something about whether they can ever be an independent voice to stand up to Donald Trump, whether they are weak or strong. And, And I think you will see this, this vote play out in Senate races as a way for Democrats to say that people like Cory Gardner and Tom Tillis and Joni Ernst, even if you agree with the president sometimes or you disagree with him sometimes, I-, I can tell you one thing. These senators will never stand up to him at all. And this is the best evidence. And I think it goes to their character. And I think it's a vote they're going to regret down the line.
0: It really does seem just pusillanimous in, in the extreme. And we'll And we'll see how it plays out. Jen, where you and I are not political strategists, but we are you know, trial lawyers and can tell a story. An ironic feature here is everyone knew what Bolton was going to say. How big an impact was, you know, having him, Kept out since by now the facts were generally known. But here's your star witness. You've got him ready to go. And the judge says, no, thank you. We don't need to hear from him today. What what kind of body blow was that to the House managers, given that the facts had already come out, uh, you know, just as as an observer?
1: Yeah, well, certainly we know that there's no substitute for a witness actually sitting there. You can watch him tell his story, right? That's the most compelling evidence. At the same time, I agree with Matt that this this vote that they took is going to come back to bite them because we do know the facts and... You know, we know those very damaging facts for the president without any sort of other things that may have come out that, that might have helped him. I mean, a lot of people were speculating that Bolton might actually, on balance, not be that bad for the president. Now, the way that this all came out makes me think that, that he would, but people were concerned. I mean, he is no Democrat by a long shot, so who knows what he would have said. Now we have really just the bad facts and the fact of the vote, which, you know, as we all know, trials are supposed to be a search for the truth where both sides get a fair trial. And here the Democrats are now able to say, we didn't really get a trial at all, much less a fair trial. I mean, the defendant being in the position of blocking prosecutors from the evidence and coordinating with the jurors looks terrible. And more stuff is coming out. I mean, just last night at midnight, DOJ dropped the, the fact that there are two dozen emails from OMB that directly show the president and the vice president's involvement in holding back the aid and why they did it. So, you know, that shows really a lot of bad faith on the part of DOJ. And again, that there's more evidence out there and this stuff is eventually going to come out. So I think that's where it lands. You wanted that witness, but what they got instead, frankly, might be more useful in the long term.
0: I mean, there I I see this. It it is pretty strong. Right. There's a sense in which the Dems get to eat their cake and have it, too, because information will come out maybe very soon. Right. You imagine uh, Bolton. Well, we'll get we'll get to him in a second. But each time it comes out, the narrative becomes not only, you know, what he did, but once again what the you know Republicans did by putting these blinders on that theme is going to feature in each new revelation the thing that they kept even from hearing um Rick, you mentioned Alexander his initial statement which which we'll assume is all orchestrated and got the blessing of Mitch McConnell, mm-hmm. was pretty damn interesting i i I don't think people focused on it so much in the in the kind of gallop to the finish line. But he basically came out – I mean it's perverse, but what he basically said is – the facts are are so clear here, meaning the House managers have proved their case, and he, therefore, you know, I don't even need to hear anymore because it's so clear. But I adjudge it not impeachable. So, I mean, with that statement, and now they're, the the Republicans are going to have to make other statements on the floor. I mean, at least the ones who aren't completely craven in the mm-hmm. next few days. But like a guy like Ben Sass, maybe who follows Alexander. Will it is it now a given sort of in the in the political campaign to come and in history that the House managers proved their case, and that the you know, and that Trump did all the conduct that you know, that the facts are established, or will that continue to be uh fought and disputed by, you know, forty Republican senators?
2: Right. It's going to be a very difficult position for Republicans to find themselves in explaining why they voted against witnesses against evidence and then issued these these press releases with a greater or lesser degree of verbal gymnastics in each one of them uh, right. saying yes we found the killer in the house he was on video there were <laughs> three there's videotape there's dna everywhere he's the gun was in his hand that he confessed in the police car on the way to the station we have waved his right to the to, to miranda but But, you know, no big deal. We're not going to charge him after all, because, you know, it it was inconvenient. We already knew what happened. (laughs) So, you know, this is a bad political place to find yourself in because they're having to admit that that they know this and 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 they also have a, a an underlying recognition
0: well let me let me let uh, me just push back on what, I mean Alexander you you're right you know he's McConnell's best friend but he's a retiring you know he once upon a time was a new republican governor a sort of truth teller so i mean he he played it in a way down the middle but he he, he went that way but he but he's the one who had, who admitted the facts but now so do you think that that in fact that will hold for you know, 10, 15, 20, 30 Republican senators or will others just completely uh, perversely say they never proved it that and and I didn't need to hear any other evidence? There
2: will be a group of them and those are the ones who are what I call the ambition caucus, um, the <laughs> Ted Cruz's, the Josh Hawley's, um, the, the folks who want to run for president after Trump is gone and they're going to try to make sure that they maintain... You know, perfect allegiance to esoteric Trumpism, where you can never question the dear leader, where no one has ever done anything wrong in this White House, and where it's all a you know George Soros, Nancy Pelosi uh, plot against the president. Um, And so you'll have a handful of those, but I suspect most of these folks will try to go in uh, in their statements and say that you know the 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 process was flawed, the House didn't do it. You know, they didn't give us enough. They gave us too much. They didn't, they weren't, they, they were too fast. They were too slow, etc. cetera.
0: Matt, you know, Rick, Rick in his new book is offering advice to Dems. What about if, you know, Villanovo has a Republican client? You would probably, I wouldn't, I wouldn't know the name. You probably would. A generic senator running in a couple years, losable, but in a, you know, not in Collins territory, has to say something come Tuesday or Wednesday, uh, or maybe not, not even. What would your advice to him or her be, you know, Jody Ernst, I don't know, about what verbal gymnastics, as as Rick puts it, they should have accompany their vote?
3: Well, you know, it's a hard question to answer, Harry, because there is the what's the politically smart thing to say and what's the right thing to say. And there are always times in politics where you choose the politically smart thing, even when you know it's not Right. But I'm hard-pressed to look at impeachment that way and and come up with advice that I think is the politically smart way to do it when it's not the right thing to do. And I think part of the problem- Well, so of, say the right so, thing. Well, so yeah, I mean, here, what, what do you well, tell well, your client? Well, well let, me, let me answer it this way. I think the problem with the position that all the Republicans keep landing on is there's intellectual consistency everywhere. If you were going to vote to acquit the president, I think the most defensible thing to do would be something like what Lamar Alexander did, where you come out and say, look- you know what, the the, the House managers did uh, approve their case. However, you know, I just think in an election year, it's not the right thing to do. It's too high a cost for the country to bear to remove the president. We ought to leave it to voters. The problem with making that statement is you have then basically said you agree that the president is unfit for office. And if you believe that you shouldn't be supporting his reelection. And, yeah, you know, you look at Lamar Alexander's statement and you think the logical result of you believing the House proved their case is Donald Trump should should not get reelected. It's being left to the voters. But if he abused his power, he certainly shouldn't get four more years. But Alexander then goes and does an interview with The New York Times yesterday where he says, well, you know, you look at the judges and you look at the economy and he's certainly better than Elizabeth Warren. Right. And that basically is the problem with the entire Republican Party when it comes to Donald Trump, even the ones that know in their hearts how unfit he is for office just are never willing to say that he's worse than any Democrat. And he used, you know, one of the more liberal candidates in the Democratic primary. But Lamar Alexander would feel the same way about Mike Bloomberg or Joe Biden or anyone that the Democrats nominated.
0: Yeah, I mean, Jen, what do you think about this? It is the only argument from like when I asked, you know, the handful of friends I have who support him that. That you hear kind of Soto voce, you know, oh, the judges and the economy. If you even believe, I don't think sophisticated people do that he's got anything to do with the economy. But what about this sort of balancing, where on on one side of the scale are these very sort of pedestrian, workaday government achievements, but then on the other are what seem to be gravest constitutional considerations. To you know, does that argument? you know, have enough purchase with average American voters or with, you know, you personally.
1: Conduct that the House managers proved here is just, it's a whole nother ball of wax. You know, it's not just how he handles a particular aspect of the job or the way that he comports himself and the, the face he puts out, you know, to the world. Uh, it, it's It's another thing, which is, he's trying to manipulate the results of his own election. And that's such a different thing that I don't know how you can even kind of put it in the same universe as the rest of what Donald Trump does and what we expect a president to do. And that's why Lamar Alexander's statement to me was so preposterous, because what he's saying is, let's leave it up to the electorate because we have an election this year. But the conduct that he is agreeing the House managers have shown is to manipulate that election with the help of a foreign country. So It it just doesn't it just doesn't equate like it's it's just so apple. it's
0: true. It's like a double pretzel because I actually think I mean, the whole election year argument is pretty tenuous anyway. And by the way, you know, at the time there was no such thing as as electoral terms. So the kind of first term, second term distinction wouldn't hold up. It's a tenuous argument,
3: but it's not that far out of line with public opinion. I mean, if you look at the poll, right. it's a bare majority or a, 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 a slight plurality that support the president's removal from office. So it's I think it's obviously the right argument that he ought to be removed. But in terms of what's politically safe, it's it's not that out of step with public opinion.
0: I mean, I guess that's right. It's almost like you have a, an exercise in direct democracy. You have a studio audience consisting of, you know, 300 million Americans, whatever, ready to, to you know, just do an immediate vote rather than the senators. But I, I want Rick uh, Wilson having a normal Saturday morning for him is uh, in an airport about to leave in six minutes doing this podcast and maybe getting a haircut on the tarmac. So I want to take advantage of our time with him because he has to leave a little early and zero back on this question, maybe more at a more granular level. Rick, You know what? what's the vote mean for sort of GOP senators, if you want to zero on any specific ones, but what apparently is the holy grail that Matt says is what was able to persuade the Murkowskis of the world, which is keeping, control, keeping Mitch McConnell as their majority leader. Did they miscalculate? And what, you know, what does this basically mean at their level? I think there's
2: a, a, a meaningful chance they did miscalculate because as we've seen in prior election cycles, corruption is kind of a killer app. And we saw in 1974, you know, eight senators lost their seats as defenders of Nixon. In 1994, we saw the House get blown out over a what was a considered a oh it's a, it's a nothing you know House Post Office scandal nobody cares about that. Well, voters did care about it. And in 2006, we were in the peak of the sort of Enron Jack Abramoff era, and Republicans lost a significant number of seats. The war had something to do with that. But all these th- all these people that are betting that no one cares about corruption. Um, history is a is a kind of cruel mistress in that regard, but I will say this you know the minute Mitch McConnell decides that Donald Trump will cost in the Senate and it's still there, we still could be in that situation, he'll turn on Trump in a hot second, and every one of these people that are that are at, at Mitch's behest defending trump, you know th- that are in vulnerable seats will be given air cover to turn exactly the opposite way and say oh i was i was I was pressured, I was deluded, I was afraid of the president, et cetera so. That possibility still looms out there. And they, they also all understand one thing about Trump. You, you never hit bottom. There's never an end to this stuff. There's never a moment where you go, OK, we've exhausted all the evidence and he's exonerated in, in, in the eyes of everyone. They, there's always another bad outcome. I mean, the biggest thing they should be fearful of is the day he is, he is acquitted in the Senate, Trump is going to go out and do a rally. And he's going to say, yeah, I did it. Screw you. So what? They couldn't. They couldn't pin it on me. And who will that redound to, against? The members who voted to, to 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 prevent evidence and witnesses.
0: All right, but let me. So let me stick with you and push back on that because he may say that, and he may have to incorporate the you know Alexander principle. But but what he may say instead is, look, as I always told you, it was. Perfect. Um, I, you know, I, I meant I went on Fox the other night as I sometimes do, and I, and there were two more, you know, political types there, and they, they were making nothing like the Alexander argument. They were saying the whole thing was a sham. There were no, I mean, this happened in the Mueller. Case where he was, you know, nine tenths convicted, as it were. But once it went through the machine of Fox News, et cetera, the actual verdict was he did nothing, and he was completely whitewashed and blameless. So, so you say that, but but will will in fact the a narrative that catches on be? See, he did zero wrong and it was all the Dems in their zeal to impeach him from the day he was elected and um, undo. I love this one. The duly elected president like an impeachment does right. anything else. <laughs> well,
2: the,
0: the, the question
2: of whether Trump's base believes that is, is already settled. They will believe whatever he tells them. And we've seen this in polling now where there's a, a reality distortion field around, around Trump's base where absolutely nothing that you say to them will penetrate if he is if he has stated a fact or stated an assertion they believe it as fact instantaneously and i i've sat in focus groups and i have sat behind the glass watching people say the most unbelievable things um because you know donald trump told them and mr president mr trump said it and therefore i believe it that is a very you know powerful force inside
0: the republican base and what's it mean for political terms for what you're saying about the senators and the calculation? Will, in fact, you know, 45 percent just see this whole alternative yeah, well, th-
2: That may well be the outcome, but uh, for the ones in swing states uh, right now and, and right. for McSally and and Gardner and Collins and, and frankly, right. even Ernst these days uh, and Tillis in these swing states, you know, it becomes this marker for the fact that. That these folks have decided they're not going to serve their constituents or their, or their desired constituents. They're going to serve Donald Trump. And that message starts to penetrate even with a lot of the suburban voters who flipped in 18 and moved to either independent or voted Democrat. Um, and I think that the, the downstream consequences are not yet fully baked into the results of 2020, but we're getting there.
0: All right, so you see some possibility that you know forty. We're always going to be would you know would 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 uh, go to the you know would would say we're on the moon, but that but that what we're always going to matter is that margin. I'd like to though double back to Bolton. He's sitting on the sidelines in this weird flirtation mode, Jen. What's your sense? You know, when's his account going to come out? Will it be meaningful now? And how do you think people will kind of? assess his whole, oh, please call me, oh, no, don't, you know, kind of dance of the last couple weeks.
1: It's hard to tell. I mean, I I think probably at this point, his account won't come out until his book comes out. Um, He didn't come forward when he could have before this vote. So I think now he probably won't till the publication date. And he may be prohibited, right, pursuant to his contract to have done that anyway, Um, you know, if he had gotten an actual subpoena from the Senate, it probably would have been different, but I don't know that he can go on the talk shows at this point, um, per his contract, but, but, but when he does, uh, you know, I think he will get attention. Um, and the question will be, what did he hold back? Right. I mean, people want details. They want to kind of be in the room with it and hear how it happened. And so, you know, if he's basically already spilled everything, then, you know, I think it'll still be a meaningful splash as, you know, a reminder to everyone. But if he's held a little bit back, including the the actual details of what the president said and, and, you know, the, the president speaks bluntly, you know, some little uh nuggets of, of how he put things um could really I think enhance people's understanding of this and and make and make a real difference. I mean he's an offensive guy the president so um you know if the way he said things is is colorful and, and Bolton kind of spills all of that I, I think it it'll uh it'll make a, a difference.
0: Matt, you know how this process works. He's now under pre-publication review. Now Bolton you know, knows better than anybody what is permitted and not permitted to say. And so presumably he's thought it through. And he's also kind of a fighter who is now crosswise with the administration in large part. On the other hand, you can imagine in the current Justice Department, you've covered this at length, a kind of extra muscular and maybe, uh, you know, somewhat tenuous form of quote unquote, pre-publication review being put into place and real fights about what he can say or not say coming out. What, what do you think is happening within DOJ or efforts to try to manipulate the law to keep some of this under wraps? So
3: look, I think one of two things is happening. One is his book is go- undergoing the normal pre-publication review, which is people at the NSC are reviewing it. And it may be per the letter that an NSC official sent him. They found some classified information, possibly unrelated this, to what oh, he has this to say happens about Ukraine. At, This
0: happens at the NSC? It does. That's it happens, what happens?
3: It, it, Well, it, depend, it depends where you worked. In his case, it's it's happening at the NSC because that's where he worked. And and it may be that they found classified information that, you know, look, he, he may have made a mistake or it may be stuff that was retroactively classified and the process is working as it should. The other possibility is that the Trump administration, the White House, is abusing the process. And uh, we obviously jump to that as a possibility because they abuse every process that they can get their hands on. And and I think the, the, the worst case scenario that you could think of is that the White House is trying to figure out a way to go back and retroactively classify the Bolton's conversations with the president by declaring that the information they discussed was classified. And if they do that, they would be able to block him not just from publishing that information in his book but really from even doing an interview about it. I mean, executive privilege can't be used to block you from doing an interview. But if you go and talk about classified information, you can, of course, be prosecuted. Now, look, the law says very clearly that you cannot use the classification process to cover up uh, wrongdoing or information that's embarrassing. It would be a complete abuse of power by the White House. And it would ultimately unravel, but that could be months
0: from now. And, And does anyone really think they wouldn't abuse this power? Of course they would. All right. Well, so, I mean, I want to follow up. First of all, I, so it's not DOJ. So it's not Bill Barr. Who who needs? Who is Trump's ally if the at the NSC or how would it work if the White House wants to do it? I presume we can't just do it on its own. It needs a- no.
3: They they absolutely can do it on on their own. I mean, look. Uh, the, the, when you work at the NSC, you you are working at the pleasure of the president. The classification authority at the NSC is extended to you by the president. If the president wants to abuse his power by declaring things that aren't classified, aren't legitimately classified, you know, just saying, well. These are classified. Then presumably, you know, Bolton would have to go to court to try to fight it, and that would take a long time.
0: Okay, but so he would have an action. There's he would. a, the, he would, yeah. Okay, I mean, and he is a fighter, so that that would be that would yeah, be bro, interesting. I, I presume he would. He
3: doesn't want to lose the revenue from his book. Uh, but you could see that would be the play for the White House to try to block him, not just from publish publishing the book, but even doing an interview. Now, of course, Congress could subpoena him and get his testimony that way. But if it's information the White House is claiming should be classified, then, you know, they might feel compelled to have that hearing in in a class, a closed session where the public can't see it. It's a it's it's a tricky situation.
0: Got it. So you so but do you basically agree that Bolton, as a practical matter, can't go on 60 Minutes tomorrow?
3: Um, no, I think he can right now because the White House in its letter has just said to him there's classified information. They haven't come yet and told him the conversations that have been reported in The New York Times are classified. They haven't done that yet. So while he's in this window – and look, and they may never, and but do you while think he's he in he this window – um, no, I don't. I don't. I think he wants to to wait until his book comes out. Uh, I, I buy the story that allies of his, which you know, probably him, told the, the New York Times that um, the reason he um, was willing to come to the Senate is not so much because that he wanted to bring down Trump, but that he w- he was worried about being criticized when the book came out that he was holding back information.
0: Boy, he doesn't come out smelling like a rose from this. No, story. no, I
3: don't think he's been a good
0: actor <laughs> at all. <Yeah. laughs> yesterday you know if you follow the tv there's lots of talk about silver linings and what dems you know now can do and what they need to do and now they're gonna fight and you know et cetera. and you know we've heard this before in the wake of similar reversals and mcconnell engineered muggings do you think do you think it's just rationalization you think it's just you know the Dems are dirty and, and bloody on the playground and saying, you'll be sorry. Or, you know, is it basically a sort of unmitigated disaster for the Constitution? Or do you feel there's silver linings here?
1: You know, I, I don't know. I'm struggling with this because it's just so hard to tell how things will play out. Um, I think it was, it's really very damaging to the process of impeachment. And, you know, historically, I hope we look back on this episode and say, wow, this is really unbelievable the way this played out. And it was an anomaly. And thank goodness we're back to what the Constitution really prescribes. Um, But if it's a turning point that basically now renders meaningless the impeachment process because it was so manipulated in this instance, then, you know, that is obviously very damaging to our country, because when we have a president who needs to be removed because of an outrageous abuse of power, If that president holds the Senate, we will never, you know, the the party holds the Senate will never be able to accomplish that. And this is the roadmap for that. So, you know, it's hard to say it has the potential to be very damaging. But my optimistic side hopes that really not just this episode, but this entire presidency is going to generate a massive backlash that will take us back to um what we hope and dream of for our country. So, uh, you know, I hope that's the way it goes.
0: The Lincoln Project. So, Matt, nice talk or genuine silver linings here?
3: I agree with everything that Jen said with one with one modification. It's taken impeachment off the table, but I think it's only taken it off the table for Republicans, uh, for Republican presidents. Democrats would not behave this way with a Democrat in office. And it's not just because Democrats are inherently better. It's because Democrats, the minute they saw, you know, they started seeing revelations in The New York Times would fold. They're sensitive to pressure from the mainstream press, and they would fold and not back a Democratic president in this situation. I think what it means is that you know one political party has just been utterly and completely corrupted. And in some ways, it is the thing that Donald Trump understood about the Republican Party before Republicans understood it about themselves. You could see it in his first steps on the debate stage when he knew that he could bully this party and basically do anything, and they would ultimately get in line. And in some ways... This vote to deny witnesses was the culmination of f- four years going back to the to the campaign through his presidency of him just taking over the Republican Party and both exposing the corruption that was already there and, and deepening it. And the only silver lining is it has been so exposed by this vote on witnesses that that uh, I think there is a, a powerful tool for Democratic candidates to use uh, in the upcoming election. And I just hope it works.
0: Wow. So this is, and it's a really interesting analysis we say from the start, because here is something he genuinely saw that I at least missed, which is you could not only ignore, but you could vilify and trash and make political points off vilifying and trashing the conventional media, the New York Times, et cetera. So I think. Past Republican presidents have been exquisitely sensitive to the New York Times, even as they've grumbled about them. And he, you know, obviously had maybe it was Bannon or someone else, some insight about, you know, actually exploiting them as the enemy that was has been this. You know, kind of stunning jujitsu move, right? And what you do, and look, he wasn't the first person to
3: come up with that. Republicans have been, you know, attacking the mainstream media for years as a way to delegitimize it. But look, he—you're right—he took it to an entirely new level. And what you do by convincing all of your supporters that they can't trust the media is you remove them as a check on you, and that's what we saw play out here.
0: And the final pleas of uh, the House managers, even knowing it was a, a lost cause, we had a lot of talk about going forward this just means that everything has been undone maybe but it's also it seems possible to me that Trump is such a singular bizarre although as you know Matt points out fearsome and actually has been a powerful figure you know what a combination of genuine buffoonery but you know effective power mongering Maybe we come to see him and their society does as just this complete one off, bizarre, you know, anti constitutional moment. And and he's cabin that way. Or do you think, you know, the institution of the of the presidency has been forever changed? Well, I. He- I he- heavy topic, I know, but you teach at Columbia. You know, you're, <laughs> well, <laughs>
1: up at Columbia recently, I actually saw um, Benjamin Wittes and Susan Hennessy talk about their new book, which talks about that exact uh, question. So it's uh, really interesting, and the readers. Or the list, your listeners should be their readers because um, it's a fascinating. Segment. And
0: what and so what's their what's their take and what do you think about it?
1: I ha- I've just started the book. It just came out uh, last week when I saw them. So I, I think their conclusion is it's too soon to tell because one of their big points is that the re-election is actually very important in determining whether the norm busting of whoever the president is, is successful and sticks or not, because people look to that to see whether it's okay to do it and then, you know, continue doing whatever that president has done. Um, so I don't know. I mean, I thought one, One interesting thing and I thought effective thing, hopefully, that the House managers were really pounding in those last hours of addressing the Senate was the culpability of the senators there. You know, it wasn't just about this president is so terrible. Look what he's doing. You know, woe is us as a nation. It was also you are the ones who are deciding this. You know, you have to stand up for the Senate as an institution. Are you really okay with saying that you don't even want to see the evidence of what the president has done before you vote in this very solemn procedure that is in the constitution itself so you know the kind of directing some or a lot really of the fault for how things ended up at the senators themselves i think was smart because many of them are up for election too in the fall it's not just the president and so we'll see how effective that is. But I think a lot of people are smart to say it's not just about Trump. You know, look at what these senators did here. This is shameful. They're not standing up for their own institution. And that's vitally important to our separation of powers. So let's get them out as well. And and we'll see if that that plea ends up working.
3: Uh, I think that's absolutely right. I think and, – and even beyond this election, look. I, obviously, I, I think the success of Donald Trump's project depends a lot on whether he's reelected again. But at some point, whether he leaves in, in a year or whether he leaves in five years – there is this outstanding question of whether Trumpism can survive Trump. You know, look, there's never, I, there's not another obvious Donald Trump out there, someone who who brings to the table celebrity and shamelessness uh, and an aura of being a successful businessman, an aura not necessarily a, a fact that you don't, you you can't see a Josh Hawley or a Tom Cotton or you know pick your rising Republican politician completely duplicating. But the formula that he's put together, demonizing immigrants, demonizing minorities, delegitimizing any institution that will challenge him, is a formula that I think Republican politicians are, are going to find attractive. And as long as they have a big media empire in their corner, it's going to remain, I think, a powerful political tool long beyond him. And it really goes to what kind of country we want to be, whether we decide to you know, collectively to endorse that or reject it.
0: Wow. So I, I think there's an end, although I almost want to take, you know, five seconds of silence just to, just to let it all, um, uh, sink in. But I think that's really what the next several months will be doing. You do make the very salient point as long as they have that media outlet or, or that the weird, it's not even an outlet. It's, you know, kind of relationship or coordinated relationship. But, we don't see that ending anytime soon. I don't think it's been too valuable and profitable for Fox at all, anyway. Well, I think, I, I don't want to say there's an end, but there's basically the beginning to a, a postmortem that is of the kind of you know, gravest, highest stakes. Okay, so let's uh, let's just move now to our um, the last feature of our show, typically, which is five words or fewer. If you're Pelosi, would you do it again? Or now that it's basically over, did the trial serve any good purpose? Can I start with you on that, Jen? Five words or fewer?
1: Probably. Yes. November will tell.
0: Nice. Absolutely. No doubt at all. And I'll say absolutely clear facts for history. Thank you very much to Rick, who's probably airborne now, and Matt and Jen. And thank you very much, listeners, for tuning in to Talking Feds. If you like what you've heard, please tell a friend to subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts or wherever they get their podcasts. And please take a moment to rate and review this podcast. You can follow us on Twitter at TalkingFedsPod to find out about future episodes and other Feds-related content. You can also check us out on the web at TalkingFeds.com where we have full episode transcripts. And if you choose, you can go to Patreon.com slash TalkingFeds where we post some exclusive material for supporters as a way of thanking them. Most recently, a conversation with Jen about Michael Flynn. Submit your questions to questions at TalkingFeds.com, whether it's for five words or fewer or general questions about the inner workings of the legal system for our sidebar segment. And um, I want to make a special plug for that because we we, we want to replenish the stock there because in some ways the topics we'll be focusing on will be shifting a bit. And please do take a moment now if there are things you're curious about, want to see addressed in the sort of coming more political context, please serve them up to us and we will answer in five words or fewer, no less. Thanks for tuning in. And don't worry, as long as you need answers... The Feds will keep talking. Talking Feds is produced by Jennifer Bassett, Anthony Lemos, Rebecca Lopatin, and Jenny Josephson. David Lieberman is our contributing writer. Production assistance by Sarah Philippoum and Sam Trachtenberg. Thanks, as always, to the incredible, legendary Philip Glass, who graciously lets us use his music. Talking Feds is a production of Doledo, LLC. I'm Harry Littman. See you next time.